Let me ask you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Chronicles 29. We'll be there in about two hours, <laughs> roughly. We're continuing our study through the Bible. We came last week to the life of King Ahaz. I've noticed uh, as I look not only back through history, which I enjoy doing, but as I look at the current culture of leadership in our country, in our world, it's easy to recognize that some leaders make big promises before they get into office. But once they're in office, once they have the reins of leadership, uh, things so often change. And especially I've noticed, not that we see any of this going on in Washington today, uh, but I've noticed that when a leader is faced with opposition, with criticism, with pressure. That leader will so often give in to the pressure. They will even compromise their own beliefs in order to maintain their popularity, in order to fit in, uh, in order to not be uh, scrutinized or ostracized by the public. They'll just choose rather to go along with the crowd. History doesn't remember those people well. They may have saved their own skin in the moment, but they lost their character in the process. And it's very hard to get that back. Such was the man that we looked at last week, King Ahaz. He knew God's law. We know this because twice last week and once today, uh, the Bible tells us that uh, God was his God, and yet Ahaz chose to reject God and to go his own way, and he chose to become just like the wicked culture around him, rather than choosing uh, to be an influence on the culture. He, he just simply not only went along, but he ended up actually making things much worse. You remember we saw last week the Bible said of him, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. And for every one of us, that's going to be the summation of our time here on this earth. Every king that we've looked at so far, it says, it gives us this brief little one paragraph summary of every one of their lives. And it says, he lived, he reigned X amount of years, and he died, and he either did do what was right in the sight of the Lord, or he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And I tried to remind you last Sunday that that's the only thing that matters. We're not called to do what's right in the sight of our friends. We're not called to do what is right in the eyes of our culture. Heaven help us. The only measurement that matters in your life and mine is whether or not we are doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. There are many leaders like Ahaz. But there are also other kinds of leaders in history that we see not as often, but we, we do see them, who when faced with the most challenging of circumstances, even in the darkest of times, those leaders chose to rise above the voices of the day and to stand for what is right despite the criticism that came. 
And in so doing, they left a legacy that will last forever. I told you last week I didn't get through um, all of my notes on Ahaz, and I said, well, we'll just, we'll just finish up today. And last Sunday afternoon and into last Sunday night, I really wrestled with this, and I finally contacted Jaron and Rachel late Sunday and said, hey, look, I said I was going to spend next Sunday finishing up the life of Ahaz, but honestly, I, I decided that um, a man this evil doesn't deserve two full Sundays of our time. I mean, I just really felt uh, convicted about spending another whole Sunday on this King Ahaz. And so uh, what I'm going to do is just sum up for you quickly the remainder of Ahaz's life before we move on to the next pivotal event in the life of God's people. Uh, The reason I want to hang out here for just a few minutes and sum up the life of this evil man is because it is absolutely vital to what happens next. The person who comes after him, his entire kingship is going to be shaped by what Ahaz did. And so uh, we saw last week, as we were wrapping up, we saw that two enemies uh, formed an alliance. Um, Israel, uh, Ahaz is down south in Judah, where Jerusalem is. And above him, supposed to be their brothers in the Lord, but now they've become bitter enemies, Judah and Israel. Israel formed an alliance with one of their enemies up north, Syria. And Syria and Israel had come against um, King Ahaz to attack him. And you remember we saw in Isaiah 7, God sent Isaiah to Ahaz and said, Go tell him that the enemy will not prevail against him if he just turns to me. All he has to do is call on me and put his trust in me, and he will not be defeated. The sad conclusion to that is that Ahaz chose not to trust in the Lord. He instead um, decided that he was going to put his trust in the king of Assyria, one of their sworn enemies, the cruelest people on the face of the earth at that time. King Ahaz turned his back on God once again and said, no, uh, I'm going to turn to the king of Assyria for help instead. Now, not Syria. Remember, Syria and Israel were coming against Ahaz down in Judah. Assyria was the nation above Syria. Y'all still with me? Okay. (laughs) I I promise you, it gets worse from here on in, so just prepare. And so, you know, Ahaz made this foolish decision to turn to the, to call upon the king of Assyria and say, hey, would you come help me fight against Syria and Israel? And, you know, it's so easy for us to sit here in a comfortable auditorium and analyze the life of Ahaz from 30,000 feet from 2,700 years ago and look at him and go, what a doofus. Who would do that? What kind of an idiot would turn their back on God's help and go somewhere else for help? Um, Hello, we do it all the time. No, maybe the Bible's not being written about us and our daily decisions, but if it were, there would be a church 2,700 years from now preaching a sermon on the life of this guy named Phil to whom God offered his personal help and protection. And Phil said, nah, I got this figured out. 
And so uh, since Ahaz knew that the king of Assyria, that Assyria were their sworn enemies, he knew he was really going to have to sweeten the deal in order to pull off this alliance with their greatest enemy. And so the Bible tells us that he went into the temple of the Lord and he took all the silver and gold objects that were in the temple that were dedicated to the Lord. He took those silver and gold objects and he gave them to the king of Assyria as a bribe. I'm sure nothing bad would come from that. And, you know, we hear that and we just kind of go, oh, well, that was a bad thing to do. Went in, took the silver, took the gold. Do we remember back? Of course you don't. Back in uh, Exodus and Leviticus, when God was giving Moses the instructions for the first the tabernacle and then to David and Solomon the, the instructions for the temple. When I was a kid, this used to bug me so much, but... We read all those details that God gave, specific instructions down to the millimeter almost of exactly how this temple needed to be constructed, the placement of everything, the dimensions of every piece of furniture down to the smallest carving and the smallest detail. As a kid, I used to go, why? What is the deal with all these details? And then I finally got old enough to realize, first of all, the, the temple is a shadow, a copy of the temple in heaven. So if we're going to do it, we better do it right. But also, it was the place at that time where God's presence came down and dwelled. Are we going to just throw any kind of a shack together for God to come live in? No. No. God is holy. And if he gives us 10 pages of instructions on how to build his temple, we'd better follow them to the letter. It's important. They were building a place for God. And any change in the routine of the temple, any change in the placement of things in the temple was forbidden by God. Because God will not allow man to worship him in his own way. God says, you come to me on my terms or you don't come at all. Now, a lot of people have a problem with that, but uh, can I just remind you, it's God we're talking about. And so to read now, and I know I'm just summarizing this, but to read that Ahaz went into the temple And he was pulling back the curtains, going into the holy place. And he was grabbing the sacred items of silver and gold. And he took them and gave them to the wicked king of Assyria as a bribe, no less. It leaves you sort of breathless to think about the gall of this. And then we're told that sometime later Ahaz saw he went up to Damascus. When he was there, he saw a pagan altar that really caught his eye. And he thought, boy, I have got to get me one of these. And so we're told that he sent instructions to, um, down to the priest, Urijah, to build an exact copy of this for him. So Ahaz, you know, when he saw this altar, he, he took out his cell phone. He was taking pictures from every angle 
He sent it all down to Uriah. He said, I'm commanding you to build me one of these. And the sad thing is, Uriah said, yes, sir. Uh, Uriah should have done what the priest did to King Uzziah earlier when he overstepped his bounds in the temple. They came to him and confronted him face to face and said, what you've done is wrong. I know you're the king. I know you can kill me, but you're not taking another step. This priest said to this ungodly king, okay, I'll violate my oath to God and I'll build this pagan temple for you. And that's exactly what he did. And don't miss this. The reason that Ahaz wanted to build an altar for himself was because he wanted to worship the Lord the way the world worshiped. And yes, by the way, the world worships. They do worship. There were pagan altars everywhere. Ahaz was not either content to or not submissive enough to surrender to God and say, God, I will worship you exactly how you've commanded us to worship you. Ahaz said, nope, I want to worship God in my own way. And I'll tell you, folks, I can't spend time on this, but there are so many churches today who we see doing exactly the same thing. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, we don't have everything together here, not by a long shot. I mean, have you seen the elders I have to work with? (laughs) They're already throwing each other under the bus. We're not doing everything right here. We're not intentionally doing anything wrong. But I guarantee you, we'll get down the road and look back and go, oi, 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 how did we miss that? So I'm not saying that we have it right, but, but can I just suggest to you that we better be on our guard, that we don't allow worldliness to creep in to what we're doing here? Hey, you may remember this. A number of years ago, a big church here in Greenville opened their Easter service with a full-blown reproduction of Highway to Hell by ACDC. It made the front page of the Greenville News the next day, and that's exactly what they wanted. Pastor said, well, we were just trying to let people know that if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to go to hell. Okay. Uh, A few years ago, a church nearby gave away a Harley Davidson to entice people to come to church. You know what? Listen, if I have to beg people to come to church, at some point, I'm going to have to beg them to stay. And I'd just rather not do either. If it's only me and one other person here in this church, and we're still trying to hold on to the truth, so be it. I'll be more than happy to get up here and preach to my wife. I mean, to preach to (laughs) one other person. big church here in Greenville, not far from here. Uh, One of the elders brought the newspaper article to me a few years ago that they said, we no longer take the Bible as our final authority and guidebook. And now, that was mm, four or five years ago, maybe more, 
Now that church is proudly saying we are hiring gay and lesbian and transgender ministers because we want to be inclusive. We want everyone to feel welcomed. Hmm. Well, how did all this work out for Ahaz? Let me guess. The, The king of Assyria suddenly became this wonderful, kind, generous man. Uh, and he came along and, and he really helped Ahaz, did he? Well, let's see. Here's the first verse for you today, Second Chronicles 28, 20. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to Ahaz and distressed him. What? Uh-oh. Came to Ahaz and distressed him. Do we have that first verse, guys? Or is it not working today? Mm-hmm. Feel free to throw the Mac out the window if it's not working. There you go. <laughs> Tiglath Pleaser, king of Assyria, came to Ahaz and distressed him and did not assist him. Whoa, what a shock. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders, and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Folks, if you want a clear summary of exactly how things are going to turn out when you trust man instead of trusting God, it's that last phrase right there, but he did not help him. That's the best you're ever going to end up with if you do business with Satan's crowd. Satan will be more than happy to take all your treasure from you, but when it's all over, he will leave you high and dry and desperate. Well, Ahaz really went off the deep end after this. We're told that he took the bronze altar out of the Lord's temple. Again, can I just pause there for a second and let's try to take in what what I just said? The bronze altar was one of the central pieces uh, of the temple courtyard. The place where sacrifices were made to atone for the sins of the people. It was a picture of Christ. Ahaz took that bronze altar out of the temple. He took the carts of the temple. He cut them apart. He took the lavers in the temple, the place where the priests would go and wash themselves before offering sacrifices. Uh, now let's look at uh, what it says here. I'll, just, I'll pick it up in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 24. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. By the way, do you see this pattern? It's trying to get us to notice where this is taking place. Three times already in this sentence, it tells us this is the house of God. This is the house of the Lord where this is taking place. Three times. He made for himself altars. He made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. And sadly, it wasn't just Ahaz who suffered because of his sin. Everyone else suffered because of it too. We're told that God delivered Ahaz into the hand of his enemy. Isn't that something? Just last week, we saw God offering to Ahaz to deliver him from the enemy. 
And now we're told that God delivered him to the enemy. But it wasn't just Ahaz. We're also told that the entire nation of Judah was defeated, and I quote, with a great slaughter. 120,000 soldiers were killed in Judah in a single day, and 200,000, and I quote again, women, sons, and daughters were carried away and much spoil. I tried to boil this down to one simple sentence that maybe we could remember. I'll put it on the slide so you could see it. Listen, your sin will always eventually affect someone else. Mark it down. You say, well, what I'm doing is not a big deal. It's my business. It's nobody else's business. Sooner or later, your sin will affect someone else. The old saying is true, the, the poem, no man is an island unto himself. Each man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. All of us are connected to others. And when we live for God, we will have an effect on others for him. When we choose to sin, we will also have an effect on those around us. And right here in Verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 28 is the sad conclusion of Ahaz's life. Listen to this. For the Lord brought Judah low, that's the nation, Judah low, because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah, and he had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. What a tragic conclusion to a life. You know, this afternoon, in just a, a little while, uh, I have to go, uh, Pastor Jim and I have to go and conduct the funeral for our friend Moose. And it has not escaped me that one day someone is going to be conducting a funeral for me and for you. This is why Solomon said, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Because when you're at a funeral, it makes you think. It makes you think about your life. If we could affect what will be written about us when we're gone, what will we need to be doing now to make that happen? It's worth thinking about. We're told that Ahaz died. And after he died, his son Hezekiah became king. Now, I want you to, again, just think a little, a little deeper than what I'm able to go here in our, in our time. But if you remember last week, we were told twice that King Ahaz had gotten so involved in devil worship that he offered his own children as sacrifices in the fire to the pagan gods. He offered his own children. But now, here we read that his son, Hezekiah, is about to become king. Does that not make you just pause and think? Wow, Hezekiah escaped that. We're not told this in the Bible, so I cannot say this for certain. 
But many times, extra-biblical historical accounts are very accurate. We are told in extra-biblical historical literature that it was Ahaz's mother, Abijah, who rescued him from being put to death by his father in the fires. And we see once again God preserving that scarlet thread throughout the Bible. Because you get all the way down to Matthew, the opening chapter, and whose name is listed in the lineage of Christ? Hezekiah. So if that's true, we don't know. That certainly would make sense that Hezekiah was rescued out of all his siblings from the fires of paganism. So we begin this morning just doing a brief introduction now to the life of this man, Hezekiah, who was Ahaz's son. And just to, at the start of Hezekiah's life, just to give you an overview of where you can find the details of his life, I put it on the screen for you. It's found in three places, 2 Kings 18 to 20, 2 Chronicles 29 to 32, and Isaiah 36 to 39. Now, we're not going to get anywhere near all those scriptures today. Like I said, we're just going to do a brief introduction to Hezekiah. But let me ask you to go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles 29. We're going to pick up there at the beginning of his reign. Now, keep in mind, the mess that Ahaz had created in the nation is what Hezekiah inherited when he became king. Okay? He didn't walk into a cushy job. He walked into an absolute tornado of sin and destruction and devastation and chaos. That's what Hezekiah inherited when he became king. His, his father had led the people to false worship. He had desecrated the temple. And in fact, we're told he had shut the doors to the temple. If you can picture now, years later, the temple with grass and weeds growing up all around it outside, maybe even with that yellow police tape cordoning off the entire building saying, no entrance. We're out of business. Everybody stay out. This is what Hezekiah inherited. And it's amazing to me that we see the condition of this nation now so far from God. They've rebelled for so long. And yet through the life of Hezekiah, you know what we see? We see God giving these people another chance. It's astounding to me. Why God, at this point in history, hasn't just gone. God sends Hezekiah. He preserved Hezekiah. And he set him on the throne as a holy, godly king. Because he wanted to give these rebellious, stiff-necked, wayward people another chance. I tell you what, every one of us are here today because God has given us a 200th and 300th and 400th chance. You're not here because of your goodness. You're not here because you're a really good Christian and you never miss a Sunday. You are here by the grace of God, and I am too. So now Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, takes the throne, and it is absolutely incredible 
to see how he took charge of this situation through the power of God. I want to read the first nine verses of 2 Chronicles 29. And again, I'm just giving you the overview, and we'll, we'll pick up more, God willing, on this next Sunday. 2 Chronicles 29, 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. Can you imagine? 25 years old. Here you go, son. I ruined the nation for you. Good luck with that. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did, oh, here we go again, but look at the difference. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Finally, according to all that his father David had done, verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, please underline that, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. Even that is important. We don't have time to get into that today. And he said to them, hear me, Levites. Listen, listen up. Now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Oh, is that not just like a punch in the gut? the holy place. Carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Verse 6, for our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They've turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. 25 years old. Verse 7, they have also shut up the doors of the vestibule. They've put out the lamps. Oh, there's such significance there. They've put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Verse 8, therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering as you see with your eyes. For indeed... Because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity. My word. What a, what a powerful nine verses this is. From one extreme to the other, I'm seeing the, the, just feeling the joy of Hezekiah swooping in and saying, we're cleaning this mess up. We're getting back to God. And then on the other hand, he says, look what my father's decisions have done. Our sons and our daughters and our wives have been taken away in captivity. What a horrific time in history this was. Imagine being handed, handed the, the leadership of a nation in this kind of shambles. But I love the fact that Hezekiah doesn't waste any time. What's the first thing he does after be becoming king? Does he fix the economy? Well, the economy is important. It needs to be paid attention to. Certainly important. That's not what he does. Does he strengthen the military? I mean, after all, their nation has just been invaded. They better pump up the military. No, that's not what he does either. Does he uh, rebuild the infrastructure of the land? 
Also, very important, uh, he'll get to that later in time. The first thing this young man does, and I pointed out, I want you to notice, it was in the first year, the first month of his reign. He reopened the doors to the temple and he repaired them. Why? Because Hezekiah knew what I wish our leaders knew today. That this was the first step to turning the nation around. It was putting things right with God. That's the first step. You can elect Santa Claus and put him in the White House. Nothing in this nation will get better without God. Nothing will ever. And then it says he called the priests and the Levites and he said to them, hey, some changes going to be going on around here. I want you to sanctify yourselves. Huh. You're not just going to waltz in anymore like you did under my father with your hearts filthy with sin, with your hearts away from God and think that you're going to be a priest in the temple of God? Nope. It's going to have to be some sanctifying going on among yourselves first. Do you know how much it terrifies me to stand up here? I don't just mean from a human standpoint. I don't like being up here in front of people. All of you look at me the whole time I'm up here. <laughs> but I mean from a spiritual standpoint. Hey guys, we're, we're not up here talking about rinky dinky little things. We're not up here talking about trivial matters. This is the word of God. This is life and death. This is eternity. It scares the life out of me to get up here. It scares the life out of me to lead a church. And you know what? I think that's the healthiest place I could ever be to do this. God help me if I ever take this for granted. There must be a constant sanctifying in my heart before I ever stand up here and dare to say anything to you. And it is a fearful thing. I can tell you honestly, before God is my witness, I have never once in all the years we've been here, to this point I can say, I have never once, not once, have I ever stood up here and opened the word of God without being prepared and without surrendering myself to him, not one time. You know why? Because I'm scared to death to do it. I'm not that smart. I'm not that spiritual. Now, I know there have been plenty of sermons where you thought I didn't prepare, <laughs> but ask my wife, I, I did prepare. He called the priests and the Levites, and he said, sanctify yourselves. And then he said, sanctify the house of the Lord. We're going to get into this in the weeks to come. And he said, carry out the rubbish from the holy place. What's, what's really going on here? What secret does Hezekiah know? Listen, I'll, I'll say it this way. You can, um, you can fight for justice out there, and there are times when we absolutely need to do that. And I think, by the way, now in America, with the clown show we have going on, we should be fighting for justice. 
Yeah? You can go out and you can fight for justice all day long. You can run for office to make a difference, and you should. That's what God puts on your heart. You can be a model citizen. You can pay your bills. You can be kind to everyone. And all of those things are fine, but none of them have the power to turn a nation around. None of them do. The great need for today is not for political reform. It's not for a healthier economy. It's not for uh, a stronger military. Yes, those things have their place. But the great need today is the same need that they had in Hezekiah's day, and that is for God's people to examine their hearts and return and seek the Lord and for the church to be cleansed from all the filth that has been allowed in. That's our greatest need today. It's our greatest need. God isn't waiting, and I could say this in any administration, God isn't waiting for the President of the United States to get his act together. He's waiting for his people, his church, to be awakened again with a holy zeal for him. That's what he's waiting for. He told us, if my people... Not if the government, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. This is on us, church. This is on us. Nothing in this world will change for the better until God is given his rightful place in the hearts of believers again, and until God is given his rightful place in the church again. And boy, when that happens, change, change will begin. Hezekiah understood that out of all the problems that had to be addressed, his first and most important priority as a leader, the greatest contribution that he could make to his country was to call God's people to return to him and to put the house of the Lord back in order. That was job one. You know, it's interesting I see as a pastor the strange pattern whenever a believer gets into trouble they sin they mess up they're carrying guilt they feel awful and ashamed you know the first thing they always do they stop coming to church every time They cut themselves off from the worship of God. They cut themselves off from the preaching of his word. They cut themselves off from the fellowship and accountability of other believers. Can I just say to you this morning, if you may be here today or watching online, if your life is out of whack, if you've just messed things up and you are so far off course and you just go, you know, I think I'm just going to quit going. Can I tell you that is the most foolish decision you can make? It's like saying, I have a broken arm, but the last place I'm going is to get medical help. But that's the pattern that we see. The best thing that you can do before anything else is to get in church, to sing praises to God, 
at the top of your lungs to soak in the preaching of the word and let it convict you, to allow other believers to gather around you, to help you, to pray for you, to correct you, to love on you. Before you do anything else, that's what you need to do. God will do miracles in your life. But people always seem to turn from the worship of God, from the house of God. And I know that this building is no longer the house of God, but the, the illustration is the same. And this is precisely what had happened on a mass scale in, in Hezekiah's day. Because of the ungodly leadership through Ahaz, God's people had been led away from the Lord and they had stopped worshiping together. And then Hezekiah is given the reins of leadership. And despite having to go against the, the current, the tide of the entire nation, it's remarkable to see the boldness and conviction with which he began his leadership and he began to put these changes in place. So how, how's that possible? How's that possible for this 25-year-old young man to have such clarity and conviction in a time of such darkness and evil? Was it because he graduated top of his class at Harvard Business School? He's, he's just a brilliant leader, this guy. He'll make it right. No. Was it because he was just naturally skilled at this job? No. No. We find the answer in 2 Kings 18, verse 5. 2 Kings 18, 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Here it is. For he held fast. The, the King James says he clave. I love that word. Anybody use the word clave this week? I'll give you $10. <laughs> For he, cl he clave, he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 7, and the Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. I didn't have time to read it, but his father Ahaz, when he went to the king of Assyria, he said, I'm your servant, I'm your son. In that day, wow, that was really throwing yourself in the mud. Hezekiah said, not a chance. Not a chance. I am not going to align myself with the king of Assyria. I'm going to cleave to God. There's the secret, folks. There's the secret. Hey, I put this on a slide so maybe we could remember it. Ahaz trusted in man and didn't fear the Lord. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and didn't fear man. Tuck that one away. There are so many things God can teach us through what we've just looked at, and we'll get to that uh, another day. But for now, let me close by just quickly giving you two simple steps for us to chew on this week. And I would submit to you that these two simple things could transform your life. Number one, stop using your past as an excuse. If anyone had an excuse as to why they shouldn't have been able to do anything for God, it was Hezekiah. His father was an evil devil worshiper. 
Hezekiah's own siblings, as I said, were offered as sacrifices to idols. Listen, do you understand the kind of home that was? He grew up in a seriously dysfunctional, wicked environment. Can you imagine the trauma that was in this young man's head, knowing that his siblings had been put to death by his own father? You can talk to Richard Wombrand's son, Michael, about witnessing the very same thing when he was a boy. It's psychological warfare. It scars a person for life. And yet, Hezekiah refused to play the victim. He refused. He refused to let his painful past destroy his future. You know what? There are some people, I say this as kindly as I can, but I've got to be direct on this. There are some people who spend their whole life blaming their parents, blaming their upbringing, blaming lack of finances or a bad environment as the reason why they can't rise above and live for God. But you know what? I've met plenty of people. Some of you sitting here right now looking at me, I know your story. You've told me. I've met plenty of people who have the most horrific, painful past you could ever imagine. And yet those people are some of the most joyous, beautiful, effective followers of Christ I've ever met. Let me give you four words of advice that could change the rest of your life. Stop being a victim. Stop being a victim. No, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not glossing over whatever you've been through. I'm not saying that what happened to you wasn't painful. I'm saying you have a choice. That's what I'm saying. Here's another important slide. Don't let your past destroy your future. My, oh my, wow. I've seen this so much. I talked with a woman one time years ago, 40-something years earlier, had experienced something horrible, horrible. 40 plus years later, she was still bitter about it. She was still angry and she was still allowing it, actually forcing it to affect everyone around her. And I stood right here after a service and I said to her, listen, what you've been through is awful, but can I just tell you, let me tell you the story of Pastor Wombrand. And I shared with her the horrific things that that man and his family went through. And the first thing she said to me when I was done was, yeah, but. And I said, yeah, but. Do you hear yourself? Yeah, but. She's like, no, 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 my story's worse. 40 plus years, I'm a victim. Ahaz was the most evil king Judah ever had, and yet his son, Hezekiah, was the godliest king who ever reigned during the divided kingdom. How's that possible? It's possible because he made a choice to cleave to God. Let me encourage you today. Stop allowing your past to destroy your future. Stop it. Stop There's no limit to what God longs to do through you. You know what? Not in spite of your past, but because of it. Don't rob God of what he wants to do through your life because of the pain and hurt that you've been through. There are other people who need you. There are other people hurting who need your story of grace and redemption. Number two, 
Not only stop using your past as an excuse, commit to stand firm despite the culture. Listen, we need to stop pretending that it's too hard to stand boldly for God in a corrupt world, in a corrupt workplace, in a corrupt school, in a corrupt family, and so on. Hezekiah stood unflinchingly for God in the midst of the most evil culture in that that period of history. He stood for God when no one else would. And boy, we desperately need those kind of people today. We've got it so easy today compared to the generations before us. Don't ever forget, you and I are softies in spiritual terms. I mean, I'm not, look at this body. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a softie, but I'm so sorry. I, I'm trying to close. I don't know where that came from. But we, we are... Spiritually, we are, listen to me, we are wimps. You understand me? We are spiritual wimps. It's raining today. I don't think I'm going to go to church. Wow. We've got it so easy today compared to those who've gone before. And listen, I close with this. If, If you want to get a better perspective on that, please don't take my word for it. I would encourage you to begin reading biographies of the Christians who've gone before you. It'll open your eyes to the unspeakable hardships that followers of Christ have endured in years past. I I just put four on the screen to maybe help you get started. The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, Tortured for Christ by Richard Wombrand, Fox's Book of Martyrs by John Fox, and my dad's book, Suffering and Death, The Saint's Highest Calling. Some powerful lessons in there on what it looks like to follow Christ in the midst of hard times. Well, that's the introduction to the life of Hezekiah. Lord willing, we'll pick up there next Sunday. Here's a man who was so committed to living for God that he didn't even flinch at the opposition around him, nor did he shrink back from the huge task that lay before him. God used him to bring about revival in the land. And I tell you, I'd sure love to see the same thing happen in America. And you know what, church? It could start right here. Let's pray. Lord, I am uh, grateful and I'm humbled and I'm a bit overwhelmed by what we've looked at today. It would be so easy just to set this aside and go, great, it was good to hear about that, but i got to get on to the next thing. Lord, I pray you would not allow us to do that. I pray you would burn this into our heart deeply right now. I pray that it would affect us. I pray that it would really, really hit us hard. To see the parallels between what was going on then and what we're seeing now in our culture. To see the parallels between God's people then and the way God's people are now. And to know that we, to some degree, have contributed to the problem. Lord, I ask for myself, I ask on behalf of this entire church family, that you would forgive us for our laziness, Forgive us for our complacency. 
Forgive us for thinking that the changes need to start somewhere else when they need to start with us. God, I invite you to do whatever you need to do in my life and in this congregation to bring us to the place where you could begin a revival through us. Whatever that looks like, we bring ourselves to you now humbly and we give ourselves to you and say, God, we want to be a part of the beginning of the great things you can do in this church, in this city, in this state, in this land, in this world. And we ask it believing by faith and with joy and expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see